Today we go to a puppy mill rescue to see what makes an operation of this size happen. Coming up on Pet Resource Radio. From the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, I'm Dave Shapiro. And I'm Madison Brown, and welcome to the show. We're coming to you from our headquarters at the corner of 59th and Troost. We're a community-supported nonprofit whose goal is to keep pets and people together through supportive services. How's it going, Madison? I'm doing pretty good. TGIF, right, Dave? Yes, we are recording this on a Friday. A little peek behind the curtain. I may be putting this together just just days before um, it's released. Um, is that common? I'm not going to say. You know, Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Um, Okay, well, why don't we go do some pet news? And first up on pet news, let's pull on those heartstrings. We've talked before on the show about Annie, the 19-year-old Labrador retriever mix who defied all odds. Annie was taken in by roommates, Lauren and Lisa, when the friends decided to foster Annie. The vet at the shelter told Lisa and Lauren that Annie likely only had a month to live. Wanting to make the most of what little time Annie had left, the girls decided to make a bucket list for Annie's remaining days. Much of their surprise, a month had come and gone, and Annie was still with them. Annie had a birthday party, a photo shoot, celebrated Christmas, went on a hamburger tour, and even visited all 50 states. Her foster Lauren said, it was starting to get hard to come up with things to add to the bucket list, she said with a laugh. We were like, gosh, what are we going to do now? But unfortunately, Amy recently passed this June after the rescue she was fostered from and her foster family threw the pup a one-year anniversary party. Over 50 people were in attendance, and Annie took pictures and shook paws with them all. The day after Annie's party... Her owners noticed a change in her and can tell she was not her usual self. After Annie took, after taking Annie to the vet, they knew it was her time and held her in their arms as she peacefully passed. Annie's foster said that since fostering Annie, they have become an advocate for adopting and fostering senior dogs. They go on to say, There are so many people that have shown us that they want to do good in the animal rescue world and that there is something for everybody to do. You just have to be willing to figure out what that is for you. As members of the animal welfare community, we couldn't have said it better ourselves. It truly warms our heart to hear stories like Annie's, and we hope it made a positive impact on you too. Yeah, definitely made a positive impact on me. I always love to see, I love senior pets anyway. Um, So seeing a, a pup like this get, you know, longer than she was supposed to have and to just experience so much, I think that's pretty wonderful. Absolutely. Annie kind of reminds me of our office dog, Frank, that Mm -hmm. um, one of our vets, Dr. Mackey, actually started fostering him from KCK Animal Services. And he is an older guy. And it has just been so heartwarming to see him learn to be a dog and really just soak in all the love that we have to offer here. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, he wanders around the back. Does he get into people's trash cans? Yeah, he does occasionally or every day, every moment. Are all the trash cans currently on top of desks and chairs so that he can't get to them? Yeah, for sure. Uh, but we love him very much. <laughs> we think he's wonderful. <laughs> Frank has definitely become our mascot around here. Our volunteers come in and they're immediately like, hey, hi, how's it going? Okay, where's Frank? <laughs> yeah, 
No. Yeah, we're secondary to Frank, for sure. Absolutely. Okay, so next up, vets tend to have an idea of how sensitive certain dog breeds are to pain, based on experience. But a new study from North Carolina State University shows not only that these assumptions might be wrong, but it also shows why vets might feel the way they do. So how do you measure pain thresholds? By pressing a pressure tool and then a warm thermal probe against the top of one of their back paws. They removed the probe immediately once the dog moved its paw. The results showed that there were some marked differences between the ratings given by veterinarians they surveyed and the general dog's actual sensitivity level. Huskies, for example, had an average to high pain tolerance, even though vets generally rated them as very sensitive. This makes sense. If you've ever heard a husky howling before, anyone ever touched them. But there was also an emotional reactivity component to the study, two tests called the novel object test and the disgruntled stranger test. The novel object was a stuffed monkey that moved and made noise, while the disgruntled stranger had a loud phone conversation before calling the dog over. There seemed to be somewhat of a correlation between dogs who were less likely to engage in the emotional reactivity tests and the breeds that vets had rated as having a lower pain tolerance. This indicates the vets might be making their judgments on pain tolerance based on the behavior of a dog in a clinical setting. Duncan Lascelles, co-corresponding author of the study, said, quote, This study is exciting because it shows us that there are biological differences in pain sensitivity between breeds. Now we can begin looking for potential biological causes to explain these differences, which will enable us to treat individual breeds more effectively. Uh, on the behavioral side, he went on to say, these findings show that we need to think about not just pain, but also a dog's anxiety in the veterinary setting. Makes a lot of sense to me personally. Um, you know, we see a lot of different dogs here, and I do think that there is a lot of stuff that in the veterinary industry becomes common knowledge um, that, you know, huskies are babies about things or whatever, but it doesn't necessarily correspond to what they actually experience as far as pain. So um, that's an interesting thing. Absolutely. As a person that owns a husky, I found this very interesting. And I will say my husky is definitely a big baby. So this is pretty interesting. Yeah, for sure. Well, okay. So today, uh, our main segment, we are talking about a recent um, mill dog rescue operation that we took part in in Humansville, Missouri, uh, which is an outpost of our friends from the National Mill Dog Rescue Organization. Um, so here we go. I'm going to tell you all about it. We're at a converted horse barn in Humansville, Missouri, where the examination and certification for travel of 283 dogs is in process. We've talked about puppy mills on the show before. Missouri leads the Humane Society of the United States' Horrible Hundred list with 31 of those Horrible Hundred mills, so the situation is never far from our minds. But we haven't really had a chance to help out with the mill rescue. So when we were invited by the Bissell Pet Foundation to assist in helping with a bunch of dogs coming from a mill that was closing down, we jumped at the chance. There just seems to be this overall sense of urgency in just about every inquiry that Bissell Pet Foundation gets at this point. This is Kim Album, Director of Shelter Outreach and Policy Development for Bissell Pet Foundation. She's the one who reached out. 
Bissell Pet Foundation was established in 2011. They have a network of almost 6,000 partner animal welfare organizations in all 50 states, and they provide logistical and financial support to help create positive outcomes. Adoption, spay-neuter, vaccination, microchips, disaster response. They're putting time, energy, and money into those efforts wherever they can. So there's a couple of different different things um, under the Bissell Pet Foundation umbrella. We have a Partners for Pets group that is absolutely lovely and, and is all over the country that does things, you know, they, whether it's that they take animals from us or whether we support them with grants. And that's that's probably 5,000 groups nationwide. But then, of course, there's a smaller group that simply, you know, takes pets from us and transfers and that we work very closely with. And I would say that that is several hundred. And then there's the next group, which is the National Shelter Alliance, where we have about 60 shelters that are leaders in the country. They really help us to dig in when it comes to situations like what happened with National Mill Dog Rescue. And they also help to guide our mission. And they're they're absolutely amazing. This puppy mill operation is being handled by their animal incident management team. So that was our animal incident management arm, which is designed to support animals and the people caring for them. And so when we have a shelter that has a situation like a large scale cruelty case or some event that creates crisis, that's when they call the animal incident management group and we come in and we support them in any way that they need us to. In this case, the organization requesting help was the National Mill Dog Rescue, or NMDR. They're an organization based out of Peyton, Colorado. Teresa Strader, the founder and executive director, started the organization in honor of an Italian greyhound she'd rescued named Lily in order to save other dogs from the things Lily had endured for seven years. Since 2007, they've rescued more than 18,000 dogs. We, we rescue dogs from commercial breeders, puppy mills. Um, we've been doing it for 16 years. We bring them back to our facility here in Colorado, get everybody spayed and neutered, deal with their, uh, often their shy um, nature. So we do a lot of rehab and then send everybody home. We, we work with partners around the country. We're growing that, um, our network of, of shelter partners, just because there's just so many dogs right now that need a place to go. And there are more dogs needing help than there have been. Shelter intake has increased every year since the onset of the pandemic, and while it hasn't reached the very high pre-pandemic numbers yet, adoption rates aren't rising to match, so there's an overabundance of animals in shelters. Part of the partnership between Bissell and NMDR is based on the idea of getting these smaller, purebred dogs coming out of the mills into shelters to entice new adopters through their doors. I'm sure you're well aware of this. You know, dogdom is just in a really weird place right now. Um, so many shelters with large breed dogs that nobody seems to want anymore. Um, it's, it's, I've never seen anything like this. It dogdom on both sides in the breeding world and in the rescue world and sheltering world is just very overwhelmed right now. So part of teaming up with Bissell and the other shelters around the country, part of what, you know, we felt would be positive about that is you have these shelters that are packed full of animals that nobody wants. So the community stops coming in because, you know, there's the same old animals are there because nobody wants them. And, you know, if they, 
brought in an influx of either smaller dogs, which is a lot of what we do, just simply because that's what the the breeding industry is, you know, largely full of. Um, If they bring in some of these smaller dogs and kind of get the community at least back through the doors, you know, the hopes would be then to, you know, I mean, we joke about things like you want a little one, you got to take a big one, you you know, you know, buy this one, get this one free, you know, because, because what else are you going to, you know, they're just trying anything and everything to get dogs to move. And this is the reality of our industry. We're all struggling under the weight of this enormous burden. It can sound callous to outsiders to speak about pets like their merchandise, but shelters, at least on the adoption end, are retail operations, except that the product here is saving a life. And if you can't entice someone to do that just because it's a good thing to do, you got to find other ways to make it happen because lives depend on it. But look, you're not here for a lecture on late-stage capitalism and its intertwining with animal welfare. You're here to find out about a puppy mill rescue. We always say that animal welfare doesn't happen in a vacuum, and that nobody does this work alone, and this is a prime example. In addition to Bissell and NMDR, we're there at the Humansville facility along with our good friends from Wayside Waves. Red Rover is there to provide logistical support, and folks from Connecticut Humane, Wisconsin Humane, and Harbor Humane in Michigan are there to help in any way they can, and to transport their share of the pets back to put up for adoption once they're vaccinated and certified for travel. Getting all of these organizations together is where support from Bissell is key. So it really starts from the moment of the phone call. There, you know, as soon as we received a call that this was happening, instantly we met together as a group and with our founder, Kathy Bissell, um, at which point she, of course, said, my goodness, we have got to stand up and help them. Um, so so the work really started. And that work was reaching out for veterinarians, reaching out for partners that can take the animals, finding support for National Mill Dog Rescue and being able to care for all of those animals for the 10 day hold period. Those are all of the things that we do that's encompassed in our services. From the very beginning, we're looking at state level laws, understanding where we can send the animals, what we have to do during the hold period for the animals there, you know, and then you have to consider the condition of the animals. Sometimes animals coming out of puppy mills are in horrific condition and other times it's not so bad. So we needed to be prepared for whatever this case was going to bring us. There are five of us from Pet Resource Center, myself, our chief vet Malia Washington, and three techs, Ray, Catherine, and Kiana. Wayside is already there when we arrive, so we gather outside the main building with folks from Bissell and NMDR to talk about how we're going to do this. So that one person, that's all you're doing. Wait, um, microchip, number, and just check in. All right, who's going to do that? Yeah. Who wants to volunteer to be be in that role? There's a sense of urgency since while driving to the seizure in Kansas that we're processing now, Teresa got a call about an additional 110 dogs coming from another situation over in Oklahoma that also needed assessment and placement. And since we're all together anyway, why not? But it's very clear from the get-go that the safety and well-being of the pets comes first. If you come across... If you come across dogs that you don't think should be traveling, they should not travel. If you're uncomfortable with anything, these dogs are going in a a small crate on a plane to be taken out at an airport and driven to a shelter. If that makes you feel uncomfortable with any of these pets, call it. 
You are, you guys are the veterinarians. The facility is NMDR's new place out here where the action is. A second location for processing rescued pets located in the heart of puppy mill country was always on the list of things they needed, but a cancer diagnosis moved it to the top of Teresa's priority list. You know, if it doesn't go well, and I'm an oncology nurse, that's what I've done for 35 years. So, you know, that's a little jarring when you get that diagnosis. So the one thing I knew I needed to do was secure a place for us to operate in Missouri. And not what we do here. It's not an adoption center and all that, but a transfer place, a place where we can, you know, get organized, get the dogs in there, get, you know, get everybody cared for and properly sent out from there. She's cancer free now, by the way. And if you believe in miracles or serendipity or anything resembling fate, things came together during this period in a very interesting way. Got a letter from a lady who, hey, our daughter and son-in-law adopted a dog from you last year. Love your mission, love the experience, love the dog. Came to us and said, let's make our family donation this year to this group. Everybody puts their names in the hat. They sit around and talk about it as a family, and they picked us. Half a million dollars. And that has never happened at that pace before. But, you know, you go, okay, all right. Now I'm going to look in earnest for a place out there. And so she found a place that was basically perfect and had just recently been reduced in price to boot. A big space for holding the dogs, a side room big enough to hold any reactive dogs, and a living space where employees could actually be on hand for the dogs 24-7 and still have a comfortable place to rest at the end of a long day, or the beginning of a long night. The place looks great, but it's still a work in progress. Kennels were supposed to have arrived the week prior to our visit, but were delayed, so the dogs are in a cornucopia of X-pens throughout the space in groups of two or three. Big AC units cool the space, and a washer and dryer run endlessly. During this operation, the team from Red Rover is helping maintain the space, a job that is very physical and seemingly endless. See, the dogs are transferred from their personal pens to a recreation space while the volunteers clean the original pens. Then they're transferred back. Multiply this by about 50, and you begin to see how this becomes an all-consuming task. In addition, everybody needs to be fed and watered. Soil towels need to be washed and dried. Poop needs to be picked up. Also, these dogs need attention and affection. Yes. Okay. And then what are you looking at on here and marking? So basically what I'm looking at are where they're going. Anything where it says lepto means that they have to have a leptosporosis vaccine before they can go. Okay. Um, getting their weight and then I'm confirming their microchip so that we are making sure we can then cross-check each list to see, did everybody make sure exactly. right down the line. Right. Yeah, lots of checks and balances. Okay. Yeah. This is Allison Reeder, Vice President of Shelter Operations at Wayside Waves. She's taken on the task of handling the way station. We're in the side room off the main area of the facility where the processing is taking place. There are X-pens here as well, but this is where the nervous biters are. Me personally... I call it Biter's Row. Every dog is brought to this area for treatment. There's a list of every dog at each station, and as a dog is brought in, it is weighed, and Allison notates her list with the information. Because the dogs are going to different states, and different states have different vaccination requirements, the list has a number of symbols and a key so that every dog gets exactly what they're supposed to. 
There are three other stations in this area with folks like Kim from Bissell Pet Foundation and Catherine from our own staff running the pets from the pens to the work area and then from station to station. They do this for hours. One station is staffed by Wayside folks, one staffed by Dr. Washington and Kiana, and one with our own Ray Lindsay and Wayside's own Dr. Marta Andelson, who used to be a part of our own team. It's good to see her and reconnect. And, you know, if you work in animal welfare long enough, you you kind of meet everybody. So when we all come together, you're bound to run into someone you know, and it's generally a good time. Tom, she's looking a little pensive. She's very pensive. <laughs> You're okay. I'm gonna be nice. I promise. After visiting with Dr. Andelson for a bit, I stop at Dr. Washington's table to get the rundown on the process. Yep, so we are transferring all the info from the weight and everything over there, and we are um, doing heartworm tests, estimating age. Quick exam to check for skin issues, contagious disease, heart murmurs, anything that would risk the dog's transport or need to be noted. Um, and then giving them Bordetella, distemper, uh, rabies, dewormer. And if they're going to certain states like Michigan, we'll do lepto and heartworm prevention. Right. And really, that's what the operation is, you know, that times 283 over several days. And these dogs are in relatively good shape. That's not always the case with the dogs Teresa and an MDR work with. Operations like these are saving lives. But the way Teresa comes into getting some of these dogs is controversial in animal welfare, and Teresa says she's been ostracized for it at times. She works with the breeders. Take 99% of the people in animal welfare who know about puppy mills and ask them what the problem is, and you'll hear something like what Kim told me when I asked her. Well, I think that a lot of states actually do have laws in place that prohibit um, the, the cruelty and neglect associated with puppy mills, but the problem is that a lot of these laws are not enforced. Um, and then we have some states that just simply don't have enough law in place to, to thwart this from happening. So, and, and overall though, let's just say that if the general public stopped buying dogs and puppies from puppy mills, we would not have puppy mills. And this is a correct take. We've talked with folks from the Humane Society of the United States on this show about this very thing. The problem on the front end of the issue is that there aren't always laws to prevent these kinds of mills from happening, the laws that are there aren't enforced, and people simply don't understand what they're contributing to when they buy from a puppy mill or a store that sells puppy mill dogs. Now, let's consider things on the back end. For Teresa, who's been working with breeders for years to rescue these dogs whenever she can, there's another view. Not an opposing view, just one from a different angle. We, we as the rescue community, immediately hate puppy mills, people that breed dogs. We, we just don't like them. They rep, you know, and then it's certainly puppy mills, my God, where they're horribly. But I've had to learn over all these years, what, what is all of this really? How do these people operate? Are they truly horrible to these dogs? And really what I've learned is, for a lot of these people, this is all they have. This is all they know. This is the only way they see to make, you know, put food on their table. 
um, for the great majority of breeders, certainly that I work with, they don't live any better than their dogs. The dogs were over here in some, you know, less than wonderful thing. And the breeders over here in some single wide trailer that has garbage bags taped up for windows. So when you see that, you know, I'm a nurse, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm built on compassion for people, right? It's what I love and always have. So when you see that, a lot of that hatefulness and judgment and what can just leave your body because you can understand it better. It's not that we like it, right? We're still here to help these animals, but, but you can look at the whole picture and go, okay, I get this. This is, you know, yes, it sucks for the animals and that's why I'm here. But this person isn't having some big fat and happy life either, you know? And so, you know, it's it just embedding myself with these people for so many years and so many different people. Um, and just treating them with with honesty and respect um, and being completely open and honest about what we do and why. Um, and that's it. I wasn't prepared for this in our interview, and I was a little bit taken aback. Nobody had ever expressed this to me before, and it was instantly clear why it would be a controversial take. But I thought about our own mission here at PRC. We meet people where they are. We encounter people every single day who are doing things with and to their pets that aren't optimal. And our goal in those situations is not to judge, not to criticize, but to empathize, to understand, to educate. People come from different circumstances and were never taught the things that we were taught. And there's so much that I've learned in my time in animal welfare that I, I probably wouldn't have known otherwise. So how can I judge these people if I engage in a good faith conversation with someone about their dog and they're willing to listen? I did my job and an animal is better for it. Teresa makes it clear that she doesn't agree with what these people do. In fact, she actively dislikes it. But she also makes it clear that she only has control of the things she has control over. You can reach out the hand, and even if it's not taken then, they know it's there and may come back later for help. And she's done it. She's talked breeders out of that line of work by engaging with them directly. And her relationship with breeders has helped her gain access to thousands of dogs that might have just been killed otherwise. People make those kinds of decisions when they don't feel like they have any other choice, and she gives them a choice. I still don't know if I fully agree with her position on this, and honestly, that's fine. And I know for a fact that Teresa doesn't care. That's not her way. And she knows that it's a stance that runs counter to what most of us learn about in animal welfare. She's doing things the way she knows how, just like the rest of us. And for her, that means taking a compassion-first approach with breeders. For Bissell, that means organizing and bringing together different groups to create the biggest impact. For Red Rover, it means being where the action is and being utility players that keep the operation running. For us and Wayside and the other shelters that were involved – it means doing good work quickly and efficiently and helping as many pets as we can. And it takes all of these approaches to make an operation like this happen. I think the operation went fantastic. The timeline was approximately um, 12 days of having the animals in the care of National Mill Dog Rescue and the animal incident management team. 
And I think it could not have gone better because of the amazing organizations that came to support, such as the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City and Wayside Waves and Connecticut Humane and Wisconsin Humane. It was incredible to see the groups that came out to support this. I would almost put money on the fact that the group that comes in tonight are going to be in even much worse shape than this group. These guys are overall more healthy, from what I'm hearing, like not a lot, I'm not hearing a lot. I only found one heart, I only found one. Yeah, yeah. it's I'll very unusual for, for And they percentage. honestly, to me, look relatively young. I think. And now the ages, I'm, you guys are re-aging, right? I'm aging forms. as best as I can, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm curious my estimate. Some of aging is so off. Yeah, but some of them are like because their mouths are wide. I don't think so. And they don't have like gray eyes, like they're not like, they have missing teeth, and they, like some of these teeth look like year-old teeth with just tartar. So I feel like it's hard to tell. Over lunch on the first day, we sit in the kitchen slash living room of the finished space inside the barn, eating pizza. A brown and white pup, a male rescue who lives at the facility, sits at my feet and gives me the saddest, most expectant eyes I've ever seen. Everyone's been working at a pretty brisk pace, and we've made good progress. Everyone discusses what they've seen so far today, how lucky we are that the dogs are in relatively good health, so there aren't many holdups. And that's good because the second batch of dogs should be arriving in a few hours, and the whole thing starts again. And did I mention there's a second building? Because there is. We've just been working with the smaller dogs. Look at through it, though. Together. That's how these operations go. Everyone just keeps working until the work is done. Then you find more work because that's how you help. And now, we say goodbye to you, friends. Big thanks to everyone who made this rescue possible. As for us, we're a nonprofit dedicated to keeping pets and people together, and you can help. Just go to prckc.org and you could donate, volunteer, make an appointment, and more. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting app, please rate us and leave us a review. That always helps people find us. For all the latest info, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at PRR Podcast on both platforms. So, tail wags and purrs to you and yours, and as author Dean Kuntz wrote, No matter how close we are to another person, few human relationships are as free from strife, disagreement, and frustration as is the relationship you have with a good dog. Few human beings give of themselves to another as a dog gives of itself. I also suspect that we cherish dogs because their unblemished souls make us wish, consciously or unconsciously, that we were as innocent as they are and make us yearn for a place where innocence is universal and where the meanness, the betrayals, and the cruelties of this world are unknown. Take care. Pet Resource Radio is a production of the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, written and hosted by Madison Brown and Dave Shapiro, produced, recorded, mixed, and mastered by Dave Shapiro, music by Hazel Rock Musical Industries. Music.